0: Welcome to week seven of our 15-week series on James. We are nearly halfway through. (laughs) I hope you're enjoying the teaching. I hope you're finding it useful, uh, both on a Sunday morning and in the life groups through the week. If you're not in a life group, I encourage you to join one because that's where we get to discuss what was said on Sunday and decide whether or not we agree with it. We prefer you not to heckle this morning, but... uh, Feel free to do that in your life groups <laughs> if you've uh, yeah, sorry life group leaders if you 've uh, missed any of the teaching this morning, you can catch up online on our podcast section on the website or you can search for us on iTunes um, and catch up there should you be so inclined. So where are we at? Where have we got to? Well, if I can just take you back to week one for a minute um, james 's aim james 's Um, hope with his letter is that the Christians he's writing to become mature and complete and not lacking in anything. And last week, Steve reminded us that none of us are perfect, are we? Not one of us, and that the church exists as a hospital for sinners rather than a hotel for saints. Having said that, though, our aim should always be perfection. It should be to mature and grow. And if the church is a hospital, then you go to a hospital to get better and to do better. Jesus said, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So that's our aim. And this morning we come to, um, I think, perhaps some of the most offensive part of James's letter, some of the hardest teaching. And we're going to see that James is actually in places here, questioning the validity of people's faith. And he's calling them out and saying, is what you say you're believing really what you believe? So this is hard, and this might be challenging for some of us this morning, but we need to remember that James's heart is that we mature, that we do better, and that we grow. So let's... Um, I'm not going to explain the title to the end, so you've got to stay with me, okay? <laughs> it's a crafty way of keeping you interested. Listen out for the Duke of Newcastle. Well, let's go to the Bible first. We're in James chapter 2. If you want to turn to it, if you have your Bibles with you, I will put it on the screen as well. And we're going to read from verse 14. And all being well, we'll get to the end of chapter 2 today. Three more to go. Okay. So beginning of verse 14, then it says, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith and his actions were working together. As the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without deeds is dead. Okay. So there's quite a lot in that this morning. We're just going to go through it and think about some of the lessons that are there for us. James begins in verse fourteen with What good is it, brothers and sisters? And it's a good reminder of who he's talking to. Remember that the letter that James is writing is to Christians, two believers, you and I. And he's not writing them just a sort of friendly, how are you doing, what's up, but actually he's calling them out. He's bringing into question their faith and he's asking them to examine themselves. Now, how many of us have Christian brothers and sisters who are prepared to call us out? Who are prepared to question the way that we are living our lives? to challenge the depth of our faith. And if we don't have those people in our life, then we need to find them. And I know this seems like a small part of the passage to zero in on, but actually I think this is a really serious issue for today. We kind of live in a society now that teaches us that we can believe whatever we want and we can behave in any way that we want as long as we're not hurting anyone else. Don't we? And I think if we're a non-believer this morning, then that's probably true. But if we're claiming to be followers of Jesus, if we're claiming to be believers in him, then our lives should look a certain way. We should behave in a certain way. And we need to be not afraid to challenge each other when things don't quite look right. It's not actually good enough to say, well, (laughs) that's how they want to live their life, that's fine, you know, leave them to it. If we're claiming to believe this, if we're claiming to say that we are following Jesus for our lives and our lives don't look like it, then we need to make sure that we challenge each other. And I'm not talking about judging each other. I mean, the Bible says a lot about how we should, you know, not judge and God is the only judge, but I'm talking about being accountable to each other, to looking over each other's shoulders, to saying things like, hey, you know, it seemed like you were really going for it with God last year and, and, and it, that seems to have fallen by the wayside. What's going on? What's happening there? Jane goes, James carries on and he says, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? And this is the start of James' case for real faith, for genuine faith. And the first point he's making is that talk is cheap. You heard that saying? Someone claims to have faith, but there's no outward working of it, then that faith is worthless. Now, I this morning could claim in front of you, that I am an Olympic athlete. I can say that I'm an Olympic runner. Yeah? Right. (laughs) grief. But if I don't eat right, if you never see me on the track, if I never enter competitions, if I'm not at the Olympics, then my claim is worthless, isn't it? It doesn't mean anything. It's perhaps a little far-fetched in the first place, I'll I'll admit. Olympic pie eater, maybe. But this isn't James's idea. He's not presenting something original here. Jesus spoke about this um, when he's talking with his disciples in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are f- ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. By their fruit. And that's the things that they do. It's how they behave that you will tell whether or not the things that they're saying are true. And he goes on, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So my first question this morning for us, the first challenge, if you like, is that are we sometimes guilty of saying a lot, but not actually doing anything? Does what we claim match our lifestyles? Do we know people that claim to be Christians, but actually their lives don't look very different from everybody else's? Are we those people? James develops his point further. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And you know, go in peace in this passage is essentially go away. Yeah? Just go Just leave, you know, I hope God takes care of you, but I just don't have the time. You know, I'm busy, I've got a lot on. You need to just leave me alone. And we say things like, um, I'll pray, don't we? I'll pray for you. How many of us have, uh, have said, I'll pray very quickly and then immediately forgotten the thing that we said we would pray for? More than occasionally, I think God puts people in our path Not just to pray for them, but to be the answer to the prayers. If we know someone that has a need that we can meet, we shouldn't just pray for provision, but that we should be the provision. John writes in 1 John 3 verse 17, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How? How? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And you know, God calls us to be good stewards of the things that we're given, doesn't he? Do we just consider all the blessings and all the richness that we have in our life are there for our own benefit and our own happiness? You know, Steve reminded us last week of how rich we really are in this country. Actually, God gives us all that he gives us so that we can be blessings to others. He gives abundantly so that we can give out. And sometimes I think perhaps we're a little bit guilty of sort of hyper-spiritualising things and we pray imagining that cheeseburgers are going to fall from the sky when actually we've got food in our fridge that we can provide. You know? And don't forget who James is talking to here. He's not talking about people on the other side of the world. He's talking to brothers and sisters, to believers. It starts here in our midst. What are the needs among us? Paul writes in Galatians 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What needs do we have here this morning? How can we set our faith in action in the church that we belong to and the community that we belong to? What can we do? A couple of suggestions. Can we help each other with childcare? Can we provide practical support? Can we provide financial support? Can we look to those that are older amongst us to see whether we can help with gardens or around the home? You know, I see a lot of um, older folk at the prime time and the prime time life group that Steve and I run in the week and I was chatting to to one of them this week and they said to me, this is the first conversation I've had this week. That's heartbreaking actually (laughs) to think that they hadn't spoken to anyone up until the point where they came here to the church. Just conversations with each other, looking out for each other. We provide frozen meals for those who are sick and provide transport for those that don't have vehicles. Last week, um, a church in Nuneaton um, gave um, a boxes of chocolates to all of the teachers in my wife's school. All of the teachers, a little box of chocolates with a little card that just said, thank you for all the hard work that you do and a little card about the church. I love that idea. Why didn't we think of that? It's brilliant. just meeting a need in the community. They recognised the need that was in front of them. And you know, Jesus said that everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. People should recognise the love of Jesus in the way that we treat each other. Yeah? How we behave towards one another should point people to the love that we've received from God. Actions demonstrate love. James continues in verse 18. Good, we're still tracking. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So James is imagining here uh, an an intellectual objector. Someone who says, that's fine. You know, you have your version of Christianity. That's all right. You believe you've got to do good things. I have my version which says that I just need to believe and that's fine. James is saying, no, it's nonsense. It doesn't work like that. That's just not a reality. The the message puts it this way, which I I really like. It says, I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department and I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together, hand in glove. Two weeks ago, Martin showed us an image. Oh, it's not come out very well. But an image like this with a man with two oars, faith on one and works on the other. And the thing is, if you take away one of those oars, you're not going to go anywhere fast, are you? You're going to go in circles. You need both. Why do we need both? If we don't have both, we cannot mature. Again, for James, this is about maturity. This is about how we grow in our relationship with God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. James is saying that real faith produces a changed lifestyle. And it might not be an instant thing. It might not be a change that occurs overnight. We might not become a Christian and then suddenly everything's different because maturity is about gradually growing and learning isn't it? And it's about God teaching us and changing us one step at a time. But there should be some evidence in our life. There should be some ways in which we are different from the rest of the world. My second question is this and I've borrowed this from somebody else and I, I think it's a brilliant challenge and it's challenged me this week. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is there enough of Jesus in your life that people can tell you're a Christian? And if there isn't, are you sure you really believe what you say you believe? (sighs) I told you it was hard this morning. (laughs) Now James really goes for the jugular. He's been winding up to this, you can tell. He says, you believe that there is one God, good. And you can imagine the sarcastic slow clap as he says it. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And you know, the demons in the New Testament, in the Gospels, have excellent theology. Did you know? First chapter of Mark, a demon refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God. That's a revelation of divinity from a demon right at the start of Mark before anybody else has got it. Right there. A little bit later on in Mark, they refer to him as Jesus, the son of the most high God. Some of these demons have got a better understanding than the disciples, (laughs) those that were following him. James is saying that believing in Jesus, acknowledging that he exists, is no better than that of the demons. So what's the difference? Well, the demons knew Jesus, but they didn't love Jesus. In fact, they despised him. They would say, what do you want with us? Leave us alone. Get away from us. We need to love Jesus. How can you tell if you love something? Well, you orient your life around it. You change who you are because of it. And what we do gives away who we love. Um, Imagine if after my um, wedding day to my wife, where I'd professed my love for my bride, I spent the first few years of married life completely ignoring my wife, just doing whatever I wanted, playing games, going out with friends and doing nothing to demonstrate my love for her. And I might from time to time say, Honey, I'm really glad that you exist. (laughs) And maybe even I'd say I love you from time to time, but how would she know if I did nothing to change my life for her? I wouldn't imagine the marriage would last very long. So my third question is, does our lifestyle show that we love Jesus or do we love something else? Does it show that we love Jesus or that we love ourselves? What does it reveal about us? James continues. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And interestingly, the, the word foolish um, In the Greek, we know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Um, An alternate translation for that word is hollow or empty, vacant. And James is saying, without deeds, our faith isn't worth anything. You know, some people talk a good game, don't they? But when you scratch beneath the surface, there's nothing there. And then he says, do you want evidence? And literally, it's, do you want to know? Do you even care? That what you're saying means nothing. Do you want to change? And then James gives two examples from Israel's history. Don't forget, most of the early Christians that James is writing to were Jewish, so these were good examples for them. And they're two very different examples, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was the father of the Israelite nation, the ancestor to Jesus himself. Rahab, on the other hand, was uh, a prostitute from Jericho. One was Jewish, one was Gentile. One was male, one was female, one was a prominent figure in the Bible, one was a minor figure in the Bible. But they had one thing in common, their faith in God. And it was such a faith that it led to them making big decisions, taking actions for him. Let's read it together. Verse 21. It says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions are working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now this is a, one of those trickier passages in the Bible and some people have um, used this passage to claim that James is saying that Abraham's actions led him to salvation. That's not actually the case. It was some 25 years before that um, that God proclaimed Abraham as righteous. You can read about it in Genesis 15. But the people have a problem where it says um, that he was considered righteous by what he did. And they say, well, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Because it's not what we teach, you know. We teach normally what Paul says in Romans 3, where it says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so people get all confused about it and they say, Well, who's right, Paul or James? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Which one is it? Well, the answer is actually both. They're talking about different things. And the context here is, is really important. You see, they were dealing with different problems in the early church. Paul was fighting the problem of legalism. Okay? So some people uh, were saying that in order to be a Christian, you also have to keep all of the Jewish laws and regulations. Whereas James, on the other hand, isn't fighting legalism, he's fighting laxity. He's fighting the people who say it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe. And they use the word works in a different way. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about the Jewish laws and rituals, things like circumcision and, and Sabbath. And when James uses it, he's talking about the lifestyle of a Christian, about love, about what we do with our salvation. Paul focuses on the root of salvation, whereas James focuses on the fruit of salvation. Yeah? Paul talks about how you know you're a Christian, whereas James talks about how you show you're a Christian. And the best summary that I think I can offer is in uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10, where it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So there's three um, prepositions in that, isn't there? By grace, through faith, for good works and that's the right order and we need to make sure that we keep that order in mind it's not by good works and it's not through good works yeah salvation is a gift from god by grace is god's gift to us nothing we can do to earn it it's freely given to us and we need to not lose sight of that because it's something that makes us as christians you know unique in our religion that actually we don't we're not earning this faith we have salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. If you've never heard that this morning, then I would encourage you to come and talk to, to me or Steve or one of the leaders after the service because it's such an important thing that will change your life. Through faith is our acceptance of that. That we are loved, that we are forgiven by God and it requires us to believe it, to have faith in it. But we're not saved for no reason, we're saved for good works. That's how we respond to the salvation that we receive. Just as Abraham and Rahab did in the examples that James gives. Okay. Jean-Francois Gravier. The most French-sounding name you've ever heard. Better known as the great Blondin. He was a famous French tightrope walker and acrobat. And on one occasion, he attempted to cross the Niagara Falls on a rope that was 11,000 feet long and 160 feet high. Amy and Nathan, you'll have a good view of this, having recently been to Niagara Falls. A great crowd gathered together to watch his attempt. Loads of people on the American side, loads of people on the Canadian side. And he uh, began by carefully stepping out onto the rope holding his balance pole in front of him and slowly he moved across and as he got to the middle he dropped his balance pole (gasps) the crowd gasped and he carried on one step at a time and eventually he made it all the way to the other side and the crowd cheered "Woo!" and he did it again And he did it several times over the years and each time the attempt became more elaborate than the last. On one occasion he went across blindfolded, on another he did it uh, on stilts. And on a third occasion, believe it or not, he stopped halfway to cook and eat an omelette before carrying on to the other side. Incredible acrobat in the 1800s. And in 1860, a royal party from England came to watch the act. And after his normal crossing with the dropping of the pole, he went back pushing a wheelbarrow. You can see him on the right there. And then he did it another time, but this time he filled the wheelbarrow with potatoes. Okay? All the way across. And then he approached the royal box and he asked the Duke of Newcastle... "Ah, ah." He said, what do you think of the act? And the duke said, it's wonderful, incredible, wow, amazing. And he said, do you believe, I can't really do a French accent, do you believe (laughs) that I could carry a man across? And the duke said, yes, yes, absolutely, of course you could, you could do whatever. And so he tips out the potatoes and he says, get in. (laughs) And the duke didn't. He didn't get in. And this is us, isn't it? Do we really believe what we say we believe? Are we prepared to act upon it? Our faith is demonstrated by our actions and our behaviour shows what we really believe. Are we like the Duke of Newcastle, full of hot air? He actually did carry a man across. He carried his manager across on his back, (laughs) believe it or not. Are we prepared to actually put our faith in actions? I'm coming into land. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says that we are to examine ourselves to see whether we really are in the faith, to test ourselves. And I think perhaps we just need to ask ourselves those difficult questions this morning. Am I really a believer? Is my lifestyle any different from unbelievers? Do I say a lot but actually do a little? <coughs> if we were arrested this morning for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Does our lifestyle show that we love Jesus or ourselves? You know, many of us have been sold the lie that it doesn't matter what we do as long as we believe. But <laughs> James says that's not true. What you do matters shows what you really believe and shows that you believe what you say you, you say you believe. Are we prepared this morning to get in the wheelbarrow or remain on the sidelines watching? Uh, Tim, do you want to come back up? And We're just going to, I think it would be good just to spend a few minutes reflecting on those questions and perhaps just having a time of personal reflection and prayer and just deciding this morning, if we're doing enough, if we're responding in the right way to what we believe. And you know, if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're thinking, well that message wasn't really for me. The message for you is that God loves you. That he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And that he wants to know you and he wants to change your life for the better. I'd love to talk to you more about that let's just close our eyes and spend a few minutes in prayer.